A real leader cares about impact and leads with integrity and their values, understands what the issues are and believes in solutions to overcome those issues. You are listening to The Releaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and its profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that definition came from Stefan Aguiar, the founder and CEO of Green Hammer Design Build, who gives you the tools to building healthy homes for a healthier planet. And in this episode today, Stefan shares the moments that spurred the idea of Green Hammer, the foundation for a healthy community, and the impact of bold leadership. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for the real Stefan Ayur. Enjoy. Here we go. Bringing the energy in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Stefan Aguiar, the founder and CEO of Green Hammer Design Build. Stefan, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. So, Stefan, the first question we have for you today, uh, you're, you're designing and building new eco-friendly homes. When did the passion for home building begin? Uh, well, you know, my father built, basically designed and built our house when uh, my family house when I was eight years old. And so he kind of did everything himself from, from scratch. We're a family that, you know, he never hired a plumber, electrician, you know, auto mechanic, any kind of, kind of trade was basically done by my father in a pile of books. And so I think he definitely had an initial inspiration for me. I went to school for economics at the University of Vermont, so community development applied economics. And at that point was specifically to get away from the trades and construction for a little while. Um, but I uh, pretty much grew up my entire life outside and working in that world. And when I did finally get a job with a suit, I figured out pretty quickly that that uh, wasn't for me. I wasn't very comfortable <laughs> wearing a suit. And I ended up in Italy for about three years and got re-exposed to the trades in a very different way. And so uh, I was doing a lot of metal work and carpentry in Italy and working on buildings that are 700 to 1,000 years old. And that really inspired me to think about the built environment in a pretty different way and started doing a lot more research about uh, some of the leading technologies going on in the world. And ultimately, that drove me to um, starting my own business in 2002. So that was Green Hammer and initially wasn't a design build firm. Uh, that came later. I just, you know, at first was just passionate, passionate about building buildings and um over some time, I realized that if we could get involved with the architecture, then we'd have a stronger impact on you know what the results could be. And in 2002, there wasn't a lot of uh, green building going on. It was certainly happening, but it wasn't a predominant part of the market. And to get architects who had a lot of experience, uh, they were few and far between. And the ones that were interested uh, kind of disappeared in 2008. So we started doing our own design build around 2008, 2009, and have been going down that path ever since and, and really leading the charge in a lot of ways in the Pacific Northwest and parts um, with other parts of the community across the United States. 
uh, on zero energy buildings and passive house, uh, this standard called the Living Building Challenge. We have one of uh, what was 20 buildings internationally that were certified by that standard uh, Cowhorn tasting room down in, in Southern Oregon for a biodynamic vineyard there. Uh, and just been trying to uh, inspire others to do what they can to combat the climate crisis and improve people's health through the built environment. So, Stefan, uh, you're in a great location for this to happen. Could you uh, explain to our audience kind of the culture of Portland, um, maybe touch on what you deem as an old building and how you're trying to replace it with a new uh, environmentally friendly one? Sure. Yeah. So in Portland, Portland is definitely an interesting place. You know, say keep Portland weird. It's also considered a a pretty liberal city. And um, a lot of ways, I think it's probably misunderstood. I think more than anything, the city of Portland is a place for small business and innovation. We have a lot of small business leaders and a lot of innovators here locally and regionally. And I think that's on all... um, all political friends were certainly a, a more progressive city and and definitively have some strong goals around climate change and uh, and a future you know the future plans here around resiliency and how to create a stronger and more uh, more resilient community. I think in particular we also you know it, there is a strong history. You mentioned you know what's an old building and you know. That's a really funny topic for me because, you know, like I said, I'm coming out of Italy when we're working on thousand year old buildings. And here, an old building is from the late 1800s, you know, early 1900s, uh, century old. It's a little bit of a different story. We do see a lot of uh, value in historic buildings. At the same time, there's a lot of liability there. And by that, what I mean is right now in the United States, 40% of carbon emissions come from the built environment. And a building built in the uh, turn of the last century is likely to consume somewhere in the realm of, you know, four to five times more energy per square foot than, you know, a building built new today. And a building built by us, we're going to do a zero energy building, which means we're offsetting all of the energy use that building's going to have. Uh, with renewable energy produced on site. So solar panels on the roof and that sort of thing. Ultimately, what we see is that most buildings, about 85% of their carbon footprint or impact is going to be their energy use over their lifetime. So whenever we're looking at, you know, potentially transforming a building or a home or a small community of homes, we have to look at, okay, what's the historical context uh, for this building, this neighborhood? What are the What's the structure look like? How good is the foundation? And should we consider, you know, retrofitting this building or should we uh, consider just harvesting the building for, you know, its best materials, donating those or reincorporating those into the project? And oftentimes we do end up at, you know, recreating the building. And in those cases, it's typically because the building's, you know, in full disrepair and, uh, really needs kind of an adaptive reuse of that space. However, we do work on some uh, more historic buildings where we we go through a pretty rigorous process to retrofit that building. And it it does tend to be um, a little more costly to do that. 
and the results, however, can be really beautiful and inspiring, uh, just as much as a new a new building can be as well. Uh, I really like the concept. Uh, I heard this one from Paul Stamets, and he was telling me he said, "You know, it's it's not the survival of the fit the fittest; it's the survival of the community that works together that survives." Um, and so the point being there is we talk a lot about stakeholder capitalism. Uh, traditionally, businesses grow and then they give back to nonprofits or donations or, um, you know, corporate social responsibility. But now what we're seeing is uh, companies are incorporating social or environmental principles, and that is the core driver of their growth. And it, it, it increases employee engagement, employee retention, and uh, produces great benefits to the communities around it. To you, uh, how have these homes benefited the community? Um, and then I'd also like you to touch on gentrification. Do you see that happening? What are the pros and cons of that as well? Yeah. Um, let me just pick some of that. So there's, there's a lot in that question. You know, uh, benefit and community resilience is a big part of the uh, goal behind a benefit corporation. So B Corp and Greenhammer is a certified benefit corporation. Uh, what that means for listeners who aren't familiar, essentially, the business needs to have a social and environmental part of the mission uh, that's not just profit driven um, as part of the baseline of the, the business of what the, motivates the business to to do business. And so that essentially what we're trying to do is use business to impact the change you want to see in the world, kind of essentially be the change as a uh, familiar slogan for a lot of benefit corporations like Patagonia and some of um, like seventh generation, some of these larger B Corps that are in the marketplace that consumers might be more familiar with. Um, in that space, we have ranked for two years running since we were certified uh, in 2017. In 2018 and 19, we Green Hammer Design Build was ranked in the top 10% internationally for both our overall score and, and our environmental score. There's a uh, kind of a, a whole 250 question scoring sheet that's backed up by, you know, data that you submit as an organization to the um, uh, third party that's certifying you to essentially say, okay, what are you doing environmentally, socially, and how are you impacting your community? How do you impact your workers and work staff? And, of the you know over 2,000 businesses internationally, where we rank in the top 10% specifically for our environmental score and over our overall score, which also includes community and kind of the work staff. We went for a benefit corp certification because yeah, absolutely, we're already doing this stuff, and why not get the recognition for it? It also helps create benchmarks to improve and. Absolutely. Employee retention and recruitment is a big part of this too. So we get some of the best staff this way, you know, some of the top architects, project managers, superintendents, field staff are coming to us because we're doing something different. And uh, it's not just about earning dollars. It's about the impact that you have in the world. Mm. And so a lot of the people who are working for us are really passionate about what can we do in the face of a climate crisis that actually is having a positive impact? And, you know, what can we do to positively impact people's health? And what can we do to help this community be more resilient? And so, you know, community resiliency is a really interesting topic 
these days. And I think especially in context of the COVID-19 pandemic and how that's really sent us all into isolation, that idea of um, community engagement is becoming just that much more uh, present, I think, in people's minds. I'm living right now at this site called Tillamook Rose. It's a 16-unit zero-energy community that we designed and built and moved into in 2018. And so we now have energy data showing that we've produced more renewable energy than we've consumed in our first year of operation as a community, which is awesome. Um, We also are doing air quality tests in these buildings. One beautiful thing about zero-energy buildings is that you you make a really tight building envelope to save energy uh, and to make it really comfortable inside. Um, and the, you, then you incorporate a, a full home ventilation system, which also filters outdoor air, continuously bringing in fresh air into living rooms and bedrooms, exhausting air out of bathrooms and kitchens. And that air is filtered. And so we're finding the air quality inside is about you know, 50%, 30 to 50% cleaner than outdoor air as measured by the um, particulate matter 2.5, these super small um, stuff that you can't see that's in the air that impacts human health, which also we're seeing, um, there are some studies that are showing in different parts of the world that uh, high levels of particulates could actually impact the severity of your illness if you um, contract COVID-19 or other respiratory uh, related diseases. So we're seeing a lot of real benefit from just a building standpoint, from a zero energy building standpoint. But one of the cool things about this community is a courtyard community. And so the architecture is that the parking is uh, away from the building. So it's off to the side in a parking lot uh, or street side parking. But to enter your unit or apartment here at, at Tillamook Row, you actually have to walk through a central um, entryway and then you know, past other units to your front door and all the front doors and kitchens face the central courtyard. And so I don't feel that disconnected from the community. And I think there's a real strength in just having that community connection. And right now, knowing everyone by name, who is your neighbor, which is what you do when you live this close together. Uh, You know, we still have some, um, gatherings less than 10 out in the courtyard of people six feet or you know further from each other with masks on but you know we're talking and see each other on a daily basis dogs are out in the courtyard and it's i think it's it's pretty different from what a lot of my staff and uh colleagues and friends and uh, outside family are experiencing where you're feeling much more isolated and the more typical backyard facing kind of home environment so I think there's, when we think about resiliency and community and how you can build that into architecture projects, um, courtyard communities like this are pretty interesting. But then if you kind of zoom out to go to your question about gentrification, you know, this community is also uh, designed and built in a um, community in the city of Portland, which has a dark past. And so this is uh, the Elliott community here, which is part of greater part of the Albina um, district. And in the 60s, that uh, was um, a lot of the city of Portland was actually pushed out a lot of the African-American community very specifically uh, for development purposes. And so a massive um, kind of movement of people to north and deeper northeast Portland happened. 
in a not great way at all. And, you know, so this courtyard community can also right now feel um, like a gentrified community and a community that's had a, a pretty dark past. Um, I don't know that there's a great solution for the development and redevelopment of a city. Certainly the way that it was handled in the 60s is absolutely not the right way to handle things. Uh, at the same time, what we've la- where we've landed as a business and organization is we weren't necessarily choosing the sites in which we design and build our projects that's fit up to the developers that we work with. What we do choose to do is get involved more and more with supporting low-income housing projects and doing what we can to consult on those projects. We're, from a bonding capacity, most, um, most low-income housing projects are at a scale of 100, 155 units. 100,000 square foot buildings. And that's a bit over our head from a design build perspective. Um, you know, it's something around 16 to 20 units is more what we're, we're able to handle these days. Um, but some of the, the best low income housing projects are happening at a larger scale. So right now we're working with uh, Girding Eden, which is one of the most progressive developers in, in the U.S. really, and has been doing kind of lead projects across the country, but specifically, so it's leadership in energy and environmental design. It's kind of the United States Green Building Council's um, main, you know, mainstay certification program uh, that's pretty well known internationally. Well, Girding Edelin's worked on a lot of those projects throughout the United States, certainly in the Pacific Northwest and definitely in, in Portland. Uh, in fact, the building that Green Hammer Design Build operates out of, the EcoTrust, uh, Jean Vamel. Uh, Jean Vellum Natural Capital Center uh, was an early girding Edelin project from a little over 15 years ago. But we're working with them and Albertina Kerr uh, on Albertina Kerr's, uh, uh, which is a nonprofit doing some worker housing for them. And uh, it's 155 units in Portland right now. And we're, we're helping them uh, make that building be zero energy so that, you know, they can produce as much renewable energy as they consume. And like I said already, what you do in those buildings, you actually dramatically improve the building envelopes, you improve the uh, indoor air quality, and you're really, you know, improving people's comfort and resiliency too. Uh, The cool thing when you super insulate a building like this, and you do some smart things about the, you know, the glazing, the glass, the windows, where they face, you know, primary glass facing south. Um, if you have a lot of glass facing west, how do you best shade those um, windows so that you don't get too much heat gain in the summer? You do a lot on these buildings just to make them a little smarter, but not in a high tech way, in a very just um, pragmatic uh, science kind of way. And what that means is that even if the power were to go out, these buildings remain much more comfortable than maybe an old, beautiful, historic home, right? So if we're in a massive heat wave or we are in um, uh, the middle of winter and the power goes out, these buildings are going to retain their indoor comfort temperatures much longer than any other building. In fact, the um, three-bedroom, two-bath place that I live in right now, and we didn't turn the heat on until December 15th. And when I did, it was 68 degrees inside. So you know, that, that just talks a lot toward the, um, it speaks a lot towards just these buildings ability to maintain 
comfort just off of what the kind of natural world generally provides. Those are kind of basic passive house principles, which is a design build standard out of Germany that, that we mimic. But yeah, gentrification is not easy. And I think the only way um, to think about development is to think about community and do what you can uh, wherever you can to, you know, reach out your proverbial hand these days uh, to that community, introduce yourself, become a part of that community um, and contribute. And so I think there's some inevitable reality behind uh, certain cities like city of Portland that are becoming more and more popular, that there will be um, increased real estate values and there will be more development and there will be wealthier um, families and individuals moving into uh, communities that traditionally have been uh, underrepresented, underrepresented and underserved. And so I think the best we can do is be the best people we can be and, and introduce ourselves and be sensitive to, um, to what's happening and do what we can to, to help everyone in your community. And that's, that's how we look at um, development in the city and you know, how we look at working with our developers. That's that's a strong message, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's really hard to please everybody, right? You know, and you're coming, yeah. here and you guys are doing what you can. Um, now, when you're doing what you can, when you are uh, making clean energy homes, energy efficient homes, you said passive housing, uh, airtight insulation. Uh, it's it's you know not using as much energy as as you will in, in a normal house like I'm in right now. Now, this may cause some supply chain challenges for any business that's trying to go renewable or uh, incorporate, let's say, organic fabrics into their uh, supply chain for clothing like Patagonia. You're going to experience some constraints, some higher costs. What were the challenges with your suppliers uh, for your materials and how did you overcome them? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, the... um the secret sauce of mostly what we do is we look at what's the best building practices internationally and say, why can't we incorporate those building practices here in the United States? Well, one challenge initially is that the U S is really good at figuring out the least expensive way to do just about anything. <laughs> and you know, that's, that's what really drives the market. And so uh, when you're in the world of the most expensive um, purchase that most consumers are ever going to make in their lifetime, which is their home or uh, their office or any part of, you know, if you look at a business um, profit and loss sheet, there's going to be two major costs, labor and the cost of your building, right? If you look at um, your average employee or, uh, or you're just consumer in the marketplace, similar where they're, they're kind of profit and loss individual statements, their, their rent payments or their mortgage payments are going to be kind of their most significant costs. So if we were to do just a German building or a Japanese building, which the Germans and the Japanese tend to be the ones right now leading um, along with a lot of Europe, the, kind of the best building practices internationally, we just pick those and plop them in the U.S. market 
then we're going to price ourselves out pretty quickly. And we recognize that right away. And so we had to look at those models and say, okay, what can we glean from this that we can incorporate into how people in the U.S. are used to designing and building buildings? And, you know, something that our trade partners that can easily pick up and, you know, clearly we're not going to be doing masonry buildings as a standard for our homes because it's a quite a bit more expensive and B, we don't have the masons like you would in Europe. Right. But what are they doing in wood frame construction that looks the most like what we're doing here Mm -hmm. and how can we adapt it to, you know, look even more like what everyone is used to. So initially our challenges were, okay, we got excited about passive house and we started designing and building passive house like the Germans do here and quickly recognize the issues, right? So we jumped to this new concept of, okay, let's Americanize this and streamline it. Um, but ultimately, our biggest challenge is that, you know, the triple pane tilt turn windows and doors, which are brilliant when it comes to air sealing and super insulating a building, just really didn't exist in the U.S. market. And the ones that did were twice as expensive and lower quality than what we could get out of the European market. Mm. So out of the gate, we had um, supply chain issues. And similarly, um, the best weather barriers in the world are manufactured out of Germany. Ventilation systems, most people don't have one in their home because they don't really exist in the, um, the U.S. for, for home, the home market. So a lot of what we do incorporate in buildings that is pretty innovative does come out of uh, Europe and Germany. And we, you know, we ship it here on boats, which we've done the carbon analysis. It's actually better to ship something on a boat from Germany than it is to, um, to take even something from a train from New York. <laughs> so, you know, which is kind of your next best option. Um, trucks, trucks definitely knock things down quite a bit. Um, from or up depending on from an impact standpoint so that is a real issue for us uh it's always been a real issue for us is supply chain and so ultimately the way we combat that and address it is through diversity of a supply chain Mm. and that's um been a real struggle luckily we've been doing this um for well over a decade now doing zero energy buildings and uh, at this kind of a level. And so we've really built up a marketplace around ourselves and not just um, where we're resourcing from and because now we do source from uh, multiple locations, but we've also worked with um, suppliers to bring on a lot more product and material that we're looking for. And we've, um, as we've gone through this, more and more other businesses are are doing these higher performance buildings. So we're getting a diversity of a product now that we didn't have 10 years ago. And the other interesting piece is that it's coming from all over the world. So depending on where our supply chain issues are, whether it's local, regional, European, or Asian-based, we have resources that we're finding in all these different markets. Part uh, because we've also started doing, we've expanded into uh, consulting on, on projects in China uh, on top of just the work that we do kind of mimicking um, Japanese and, and uh, German in particular construction, but also other European countries' construction methods, techniques, and materials. 
So it's really also opened us up as we start consulting these different areas and um, resourcing from these different zones. It's helped us um, tap into a, the global market in a much uh, healthier way from a, an interesting kind of diversity perspective. Um, ultimately, we are looking for you know just regional material when it comes to things like our wood products and heavier materials like concrete. We're lucky in the Pacific Northwest to have those things pretty close by. And if you really want to understand your material supply chain, like we do, uh, we, we want to understand it at a, an ingredient level. You know, usually you understand your foods at the ingredient level, but not your building materials. But our number one focus is health. And so we're looking at health of occupants, health of our staff, health of um, the planet when we consider the life cycle of our buildings. Right? And so our whole mission is to uh, use the unified design build process to create healthy and inspiring buildings for life. And health is at the forefront of that. And if we're going to say that we're creating healthy buildings, or if that's our ultimate aspirational goal, when there's right now over 80,000 chemicals uh, that comprise components in the United States. And so we know about 12 to 16,000 of those are harmful to human health. There's been studies done through not just the EPA um, here, but the uh, health, um, healthy, uh, health Products Declaration um, and the International Living Future Institute uh, and a variety of other organizations that are basically focusing on, okay, how do we eliminate toxics from the built environment? And Bottom line is you need to understand it at the ingredient level. Uh, the living building that we did in Southern Oregon and completed in 2016, we had over 1,200 materials that we needed to analyze for all their ingredients. You don't have an ingredient list in a product. So we called manufacturers and needed to get a sign-off from either their company chemist or C-class uh, leader, so you know their chief executive officer, or operations officer, saying yes, um, this is our ingredient list for this product. If we couldn't get that, then we at least needed to eliminate things like uh, what the International Living Future Institute is calling the red list of materials. These are kind of the um, core. They come boils down to about four hundred um, core ingredients that we know are are the most toxic and end up in. Um, essentially most of these 12,000 or so harmful chemicals that are um, in building materials. And they'd have to at least say those weren't in there. This was a 2000 square foot tasting room. So we got a lot of people hanging up on us. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't an easy task, but in that task, we've learned a tremendous amount about vetting um, products and materials for their ingredients. And, Bottom line is as simple is better and is best. And knowing your uh, resource is the easiest way to get to the bottom line on ingredients. So if you can purchase something from a local forester here, then, well, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, but if you're getting amalgamated wood product from, you know, who knows where or um, drywall that might be coming from Texas or China or Oregon, you know, there's a, difference there in our ability to vet those products and materials. 
So we've spent a long time just trying to um, understand our supply chain and understand it at an ingredient level. And what that's ultimately done is created a supply chain that's both diverse and international and also hyper-local. And right now, the hyper-local piece has been a real advantage as well because we're able to call the manufacturers and, and figure out what their supply is looking like. And, and really, since we are design-build, we are able to do that in the design process and not have to run, you know, wait until we're in construction to figure out we designed a product, uh, product or a home or a building that, with a shortage already built into it, right? So I, I think it's, um, I think supply chain is a, a huge challenge for everyone. I think one excellent um, opportunity for our organization that we recognize is a real benefit is our ability to understand our supply chain, our already deep knowledge of it, and also our, the ability to implement uh, what we know is um, either has, there's an excess or a scarcity in supplies into our design, right? Well before we actually move into construction. Inevitably, there's the miscellaneous small stuff that is still a tripping hazard and you can't work around. Um, but I think we're in a much better position than most. And talking to colleagues, we've, um, yeah, I'm just super thankful that we're design built. Say that. So I'm just going to break this down. Healthy materials. And so oh. you've got all the research on the chemicals that go into all the materials. Healthy distribution. So your shipping products, it's going to reduce your energy. Um, then the design of the house, so healthy homes create healthy people, which create healthy communities. It's all kind of all these stakeholders are, are the focus is on health. Now, you, you touched on something that I think is really important for people listening to this to understand. How important are those relationships with those suppliers when you're trying to build out this healthy supply chain? Uh, it's critical. Uh how do you do absolutely it? critical? Sorry, just how do you do it? How do you how do you build those strong relationships? Well, some of it's time, right? You know, trust is developed uh, over time. It's not always instantaneous. It's uh, it's conversation. It's um, often meeting face to face, and so right now that's that is challenging, and so we're. We are really fortunate to have already developed a lot of these relationships. I, I think uh, business starting out right now is it, um, if you're not maybe in the technology field, it's going to be really, really challenging to, to establish those trusted, those trusted relationships. You know, certainly what makes business go around, money has a lot to do with it too, right? And so paying, paying your people... Um, paying your uh, your vendors on time and consistently, and you know, treating them like how you would want to be treated. This is kind of those those golden rules. Um, generally, always understanding that everyone brings good intentions to a process. So if there's ever you know if there's ever a conflict or an issue um, or a supply chain problem that you don't you know initially jump to you know what they did wrong, but uh, instead work with them on a solution and trust that they, you know, 
didn't intend to create an issue. For for us, it's also recognition, right? So if we're doing a high-level certification on a project and we're getting recognized, we do a shout-out whenever we can to our, you know, our suppliers and our trade partners. Um, it's difficult to hit every single one because you know there are literally thousands of components, hundreds of vendors and suppliers on a, a project. And you get to know the ones that are really passionate about doing this stuff. And so you do whatever you can to support those first, because, you know, as much as it's important to bring along those who aren't quite believers yet (laughs) in what we do, it's even more important to recognize the strengths that are already existing in the industry and to support those and kind of put your money uh, where your mouth is, so to speak. And what I've seen is that really pays big dividends. So if someone is like, hey, we really want to get into this market. We've got this great new high-performing product. You know, we're not the first necessarily to jump in because we, we need to make sure that this product's going to be durable and effective. But we're also going to go meet with that person and sit down and talk to them and help ensure that they get there. Because if someone is, is genuinely passionate about creating better buildings, which is what I think this is about, you know, healthier buildings are fundamentally better, last, uh, longer lasting, more durable, uh, and just have a healthier life cycle from, you know, the manufacturing of their materials to the eventual reuse of their materials or deconstruction or recycling down the road. Um, and so anyone who wants to play a positive role in that, we do as much as we can to recognize them in our social media, to recognize them in any kind of magazine publishing that are articles that come out about us um, and shout outs, little celebrations whenever we can, because, you know, it's tough enough to do just the regular day-to-day business. In fact, I don't know how people do just business for profit because to me, there's not enough meaning in that. But to raise the bar and say, I want to have a positive social and environmental impact with what we do on a day-to-day basis, that's a real challenge. And so I feel like those are the real heroes out there and they need to be rewarded and recognized. So I think that's probably the biggest uh, dividend that you can pay is recognition. Uh, You just said uh, you don't think profit is, is enough to have meaning. Expand on that. And when did you realize that? Was it when you were wearing a suit and you said, I, I, I don't want to wear a suit for the rest of my life? Especially yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I was actually, I think I recognized that uh, the highest paying job I had in, until maybe just a few years ago was when I was uh, 21 coming out of college for a few months and um, wearing a suit in Boston. And I, uh, it's taken me, it took me decades to catch back up to that. <laughs> um, definitely not the most important thing in life. And I think great leaders recognize that. For me, um, there's so much going on in the world that's, really challenging from an environmental and social perspective. You know, I was studying world food population and sustainable development in the mid to late nineties in Vermont. And it's just 
a bit abhorrent what we do to um, underserved populations in the world, whether it's women or minorities. Um, and, you know, the lack of education, especially for women and, you know, just in general, uh, the biggest challenges, it felt like then in the 90s were just not being addressed. Like, it seemed like the climate crisis was inevitable to me then. And it seemed to me that it was like this big, you know, secret that no one was addressing. And I felt like, you know, if governments aren't going to address it and I can't find a place where I'm going to, uh, where I can work that is going to make that be its primary goal, then, well, I'm going to try and do something on my own. And, you know, years as I've kind of progressed through the business, I recognized there were a lot of other leaders then. I just didn't recognize it as much because everyone's voices were, um, you know, were tamped down. And, and I think a lot of people were a bit afraid of speaking out about these issues because we're concerned that our uh, clients or constituents, the stakeholders, the consumers might not respond or would respond in a way um, that they would leave the brand, right? And so I think a lot of brand leaders were, um, were shying away from maybe their actual core values. And I think that's changed fundamentally. I think, you know, even then there are, there are those rare few like Patagonia that really did speak their voice and I think have proven this model. Um, for me, it just seemed to be the only direction to take. Like mm. there's a major crisis going on here. If we don't address that, then we're not facing reality. And, you know, I have a 11 year old daughter and it's very important to me that I'm able to look her in the eyes and say, you know, we did everything we could. I did everything I could. And I think that's, uh, that's the type of legacy that I would want to leave behind and not, not a treasure chest of gold and diamonds because, you know, that's not going to change the future, the way that addressing environmental and social issues will. You mentioned crisis. We're facing a crisis right now. The, you know, many crises right now. And there's yeah, one mm-hmm. that's going on COVID, obviously. Um, when COVID hit you, uh, what did you do to pivot your business if you did anything? And have you faced any struggles from the lack of urgency now for either the climate crisis or the mental health crisis? Yeah. So uh, I think, again, we were our focus on health is so paramount and that as soon as a health crisis was on board and granted, it was a little bit like um, boiling a frog, you know, the idea that a frog's in hot water and that the water gets hotter and hotter, the frog just kind of sits there and it's, it doesn't um, know to react until suddenly the water's boiling, the frog dies. Right. Kind of felt that way a little bit with uh, the COVID-19 crisis in the sense that, okay, well, there's something going on in China um, it didn't really feel real to me. <laughs> uh, it was that week that the NBA closed. I think that was March 11th uh, yep. when the NBA closed. I'm a big NBA fan. Love basketball. Go yeah, go Blazers. 
And, uh, you know, it was that, I think mm, Sunday or Monday, I think Sunday night was maybe March 8th. And we had a Blazers game. And I remember I didn't go to the game. My daughter was there actually volunteering and um, handing out raffle tickets so that she could get free seats uh, with her mom and watch and watch the game. And I was thinking, this is not a good idea. <laughs> so I was, um, you know, coming home that day from work and seeing all the traffic and like, this has got to change. Like we've got people in Washington with this disease. What if it's here already? And, you know, I think that rec- realization and then the closing NBA, we reacted that week and put in social distancing, um, uh, basically mechanisms within the business. We sent people um, to work from home that following Monday. And we had already been working on a resiliency plan. The, the resiliency plan had been based in this idea of a major earthquake. And so what would we do? How would we start operations back up again? How could we be first responders in a, um, a major disaster like that? And so, um, you know, and assuming that the, the brick building that we were in, even though it's been seismically retrofit, would not be a place uh, where we could really meet anymore and be more likely individual homes and things like that. We had a remote work policy that was um, pretty robust, everything down to everyone's cell phones becoming hotspots and things like that once the cell phone service came back on. And it really worked well um, transitioning into a pandemic to be able to work from home. So we, it was basically, a, you know, over a weekend, we put in all these policies into place. And before the CDC had, um, you know, or the World Health Organization had fully recognize this as a global health pandemic, we were already installing, installing all of these um, work from home and remote work policies. We, uh, as soon as we, we saw that, you know, we should probably put in place a social distancing officer, our field services, our director of field services, Greg Walton became kind of our, our chief social distancing officer. We put in all of our superintendents became kind of deputized in that space. Uh, there was training around it and, you know, um, hand sanitizer was being made and distributed to job sites. So we're, did everything we possibly could, you know, until, you know, not sure if we were going to be considered essential or not. We were Mm. fortunate to be considered that construction in the state of Oregon was considered, um, essential. And I didn't, I wanted to make sure that not only were our staff safe and our clients um, and their projects safe, that if we were able to operate, that we'd honor that ability and be as safe as we possibly can and could be. And so very early on, completely reoriented the business and mess you know, we're constantly updating the staff as we were developing our um, COVID-19 safety procedures, because it was a bit of a rollout. It probably took us, a little over a week. Um, by March 23rd, we had, you know, a five-page COVID-19 safety procedure document that was shared with everyone. Uh, we are already in, had already installed a bunch of procedures already, but it became much more official. Our clients got copies of, uh, of all the procedures. We had messaging for social media. Wow. Um, and I think that fast reaction really helped us kind of continue forward. We we did get hit 
hard also on the revenue side. Um, we have, we, we've talked a lot on this podcast about our residential work. We were also doing work at an airport. Um, we had other commercial projects that were going on and those were stopped or just put to a halt. Hmm. So, uh, we were, we were lucky recipients of, um, the PPP loan. And that actually has been essential for us to be able to keep everyone fully employed. Mm. So I do think, um, some of the, you know, the government reaction to everything has been appropriate. And I could say at least for one small business, uh, a large percent, there is a significant percentage of our staff has been able to see continuous employment through this because of that loan. We've, you know, done everything from reorganize our shop to some, um, some extra work, for a nonprofit that I'm on the board for. Um, and that was allowed because we have, uh, we had the additional, um, payroll protection, uh, loan. So that was, that was pretty, pretty awesome too. in all of this to see that, that work. So when something like this happens and people, let's say they have tighter pockets, um, and you are providing homes. Now I haven't asked you the question one. I'll just ask you really quick. Are your homes uh, at, at say at the same price as a traditional non net zero energy home? Is it more expensive? No, not no, t- not typically. We, we do whatever we can, as much as we possibly can, to be within um, market price. Usually, that's about ten percent or so. Uh, sometimes it can be more. It depends on how custom the building might be or the project might be. Inevitably, to make a building super insulated, well. The, you know, you're putting a, a super amount of insulation to it. So that means more right. um, to put in uh, a fully weather, um, you know, our air barrier is a weather barrier that we make super airtight and we test that. Um, it's a more robust barrier and it's fastidiously put together. That means there's more labor, there's a more expensive material. There's just some things that you, um, you know, through the triple pane windows, there are some things that do add expense. We, would argue that you know over a lifetime of a building, um, if you do the math, the energy offset actually makes up for about twenty percent of those upfront costs. And when you only have a ten percent increase in price, there's actually a, a net savings there and a net present value. That's a little bit different, but the reality is it's it does cost more upfront. Upfront, right? But like you so, said, over time. Oh, you just okay. I was going to say over time it's going to be around the same. And I think that's so important uh, when trying to create, let's say like uh, comparables in the marketplace. You have a choice A that isn't energy efficient. You have choice B that is, and, and you know it's gonna be more of, of initially, but over time you're going to be saving money on this through energy costs. Um, I think people are gonna go with B, you know, uh, option B you know, for years to come. Um, well, you know, and it's, I think we don't put those options out to the marketplace very often. Mm. Unfortunately, I don't think it's really under, well understood. I think it, it's, a, it's a disservice and it's a little bit disgusting how most homes in the United States are really um, designed for a 25-year 25, 25 life cycle. So with, at the end of 25 years, you have to replace the roof, many of the windows, uh, portions of the siding, and oftentimes bits of the sheathing, the, the plywood-oriented strand board material that really keeps the structure together on the outside. Might be failing because uh, the building wasn't fastidiously put together. Uh, you know, we do everything from eliminating roof vents through metal roofs. We put on metal roofs to make the buildings more durable, to be able to harvest water eventually if you aren't initially. Um, and certainly your roof could become a resource for water and a 
uh, you know, a global power outage or a regional power outage. And so, you know, we think about like, you know, the whole package on a building and how you make that building super resilient because resilient buildings allow for resilient communities because ultimately one, one of our homes in a neighborhood, we know, well, that home's going to be more comfortable. It's going to be more durable. Uh, it's going to be able, to be able to collect clean rainwater. It can be actually an energy resource for a community. And so I think, you know, that, that little bit of extra cost up front actually can go a tremendous way toward the resiliency of a, a community and the community that's around it, especially depending on, you know, who's living in the, that particular building. But again, if all of our commercial buildings or even just a percentage of them were designed and built this way, there'd be huge trade-offs there. And that, um, you know, can't underscore the importance of the uh, just lower maintenance and higher durability. Because again, you know, if we just accept it, that you're going to pay this less cost up front and everyone's like, oh, I've got to replace my roof. Well, that could be a $25,000, $10,000 cost. If that's a low income family, how are they going to cover that cost? Well, more mortgage. So we, you know, <laughs> yeah. and you can refinance and you just, it's a debt cycle that goes on in perpetuity. And I think it really strips um, away equity for people, especially at the, the lowest margin. So it, I made a choice not to build cheap um, and design build cheap, but to design and build really, really smart and really well and really durable. And, you know, if we can't design and build at the lowest cost um, to bring in affordable individual homes, well, can we at least contribute on larger scale um, affordable housing projects so that can bring really high quality, durable homes um, in a kind of a team environment uh, to many more people. And so I think the more buildings like we have, uh, more buildings that are zero energy and durable and healthy like this, the more resilient communities are and, and will be. Now, Stefan, when COVID hits um, in you know, 3 million people are filing for unemployment a week. And you think about the city of Portland, the city I love, you know, food carts, local, local businesses, local mom and pop shops, uh, fantastic restaurants uh, that are, are your locally sourced foods, craft beers. The economy was hit really hard. Tourism, the economy is hit very hard in Portland. What keeps you up at night currently? And do you think this is going to hurt or benefit your business in the long term? Hmm. Well, I try not to keep up at night. I have too many <laughs> people depending on me uh, to uh, to stay up late at night. I I try not to overthink or over worry about the scenario. Mm. It is bleak. And I think think the reality is it's transformative and a lot of the transformation isn't necessarily going to be positive. Mm -hmm. And so I also try to think about the positive transformation, the not positive transformation. I think we're going to see a consolidation of what really made this and makes this city of Portland rich. That said, I, um, in the sense that I think some, a variety of, there's going to be a lot of small restaurants and craft breweries and things like that, they're not going to make it out of this. 
I remember when I was starting this business, how adaptive I was and how um, innovative I was. And I'm a little different now, you know, it's a, uh, a different stage in our business, but it gives me faith to think that new, maybe younger um, or newer entrepreneurs are going to find ways uh, to operate and, and it's going to look very different. For our business, I think we're situated really well. I think the fact that we have um, a strong pipeline of clients, uh, you know, in the architecture construction world, uh, word of mouth rules, and we have a really strong word of mouth pipeline. And we're still seeing a steady intake of, of new work. And it has reduced. There is that reality. Um, we... It does look like the PPP loan for us is actually bridging what it's supposed to do. Um, you know, we had a few commercial projects that that shut down because um, they're for businesses that you know are in the restaurant industry or otherwise aren't able to move forward right now. Um, so we're we're fortunate that we have more residential work that's uh, kicking into place this summer and fall, and we've. Uh, been hyper-focused. I've been thinking a recession has been coming for a while. So we've been working on what our long-term plans would be to uh, build a lar um, some larger projects into our pipeline that'll allow us to bridge a, you know, a year or two recession if we needed to. And so we already have uh, a lot of uh, these larger projects kind of instilled in our, our pipeline. So we look pretty we look pretty good. We look really healthy and, and, and in fact could have our best year ever next year, even amongst this um, pandemic, which I believe is going to continue into next year. And so I think we're super fortunate. I think there's going to be a lot of change and I, um, I feel sometimes almost a little bit guilty that we're probably going to come out of this with more market share than we did going into it. And, you know, I, I balance that guilt with the reality of, I feel like as far as uh, in a business who's going to take more market share, I think we're going to take it and, and transform it into a really responsible, in a really responsible way. Our focus on health and our focus on, um, inspiring others to follow this path, I think is really going to have a positive effect on this community. And I think we really can help create a more resilient Portland and a more resilient Pacific Northwest. And which case makes a more resilient United States and overall um, world. I think if we can continue to do the work that we do and be strong and inspire others, we are a solution right now when amongst uh, a bunch of issues and causes. And so I feel like if people who want to participate in a better built environment are looking for solutions, they're going to find us and see our track record and be really excited to participate in creating resilient, regenerative, uh, healthy communities. And I think we're extraordinarily well poised moving into the future. And at the end of the day, we can only hope responsible leadership prevails in this situation. Now, Stefan, you mentioned 
being agile. You mentioned building strong relationships, focusing on health, long-term plans, and growing in a responsible way. To you, Stefan, what is your definition of a real leader? A real leader cares about impact and leads with integrity and their values, understands what the issues are and believes in solutions to overcome those issues. And I think Green Hammer has been a really great leader and is a real leader in this industry in that we care about our impact. We care about having a positive you know, financial impact for ourselves, our staff, uh, and our clients. But more importantly, we also care about the social and environmental impacts of our work. And we completely identify with what the major challenges are in the world right now. And we do everything we can to address those directly. And because of that, we become, you know, a, a resource and a sent, provide a sense of responsibility and accountability for our clients and our staff and the community at large, which ultimately um, delivers resiliency to everyone. And I think a real leader identifies that they need to have a resiliency plan, not just for their bottom line, but ultimately if they want to, you want to have a strong business moving forward, we, you need to have a resiliency focus. And I think real leaders care about their impact. They care about um, having integrity with that impact and they care about creating a powerful and resilient future for all of us. Definitely well said. Appreciate you coming on the Real Leaders podcast today. Uh, we had a fun time this week at the uh, Real Leaders Impact Award celebration. Congratulations on making the uh, top 100 of 2020 for impact companies. Uh, so hats off to you all at Green Hammer. And uh, again, it's always great to have an Oregonian, a fellow Oregonian, uh, come on, <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, so for uh, Stephen Aguilar, I'm Kevin Edwards asking to go out there, lead with your values, and always, folks. Keep it real. Appreciate you coming on the show, Stefan. All right, good people. And thank you for tuning into this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you haven't yet subscribed, then please, by all means, hit that subscribe button and leave us a healthy review. And for you lucky listeners today, well, again, you are going to walk away with a free magazine. All you got to do is go online to real-layers.com slash subscribe and use coupon code podcast25 at checkout to receive your first magazine for free with a year subscription, folks. That's four magazines for the price of three. Again, coupon code podcast25. And for all the visual learners out there today, if you want to watch this interview on your computer or TV with friends and family, make sure to subscribe to our new YouTube channel at Real Leaders Magazine to see all of our interviews with guests harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.